All right, well, I've struggled all week with how to start this. Um, but uh, hey, we're just going to jump. We're going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in. So um, a lot's been happening this week. A lot's been happening this week. In, in one week alone, we've got things like Charlottesville right here in our own country. We've got what's just happened over the weekend in Barcelona. The ongoing threat of North Korea and what's going on there. I even saw in our own backyard this weekend, there was a huge uh, human trafficking sting where they arrested 12 people right here in East Tennessee. Among them, an EMT, a volunteer firefighter, a head football coach at a middle school, and a youth pastor at a church. This is the world we are living in. That's this week. I could have preached this sermon last Sunday and had a different list. This is the world we find ourselves living in. And on one hand, it's... It's heartbreaking, it's depressing, it's, it's hard to even wrap our heads around, God, what is going on? Where are you in this? Where are you in this? What do I do in this? Where do I stand in this? God, what is this turmoil that is stirring in our country and around the globe? God, why is human life so devalued? I mean, that's, that's the common denominator in all this. Yes. We're not valuing each other. We're not treasuring people. God treasures us. He put his mark on us. We're made in his image. He formed us while we were yet in our mother's wombs. In fact, he thought of us before the foundation of the world. He had you in mind before he even said, let there be light. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet in our world, Sin and its repercussions just continue to echo forth from one generation to the next. See, as, as heartbroken and angry as I can get at the perpetrators of this stuff, many of them have been victims themselves. They've been abused. They've been marginalized. They've been victimized. And in their pain, in their anger, in their rage, they look for some way to express that out. And so we just recycle sin one generation to the next, one person to the next. And it's heartbreaking. I'm not actually going to start with a scripture this morning. I'm going to start with a quote. It's probably known more famously from Bob Marley in his song, War. But it's a direct quote from Haley Selassie's speech from the UN in 1963. In his song, War, he says, Until the philosophy that holds one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, then everywhere is war. I think we could even take that word race and just say any person that is held as inferior, as below. Another person that's lifted up. See, on, on some level, it should almost be obvious to call something out like Nazi thought, white supremacy, things like that. Or you would think it would be obvious to stand up and call that out. But what's a little bit harder 
is when I start boiling it down to a personal level and I begin to look in the mirror and invite Jesus to speak into my own life and say, God, what about those on whom I look down? What about the people that I feel superior to? And if you're not sure if you're doing that or not, well, what are some of the things that happen in your thought life and come out of your mouth? Judging or criticizing or ignoring people that are just different. See, this has to start with me making war on my own prejudices, on the places in my own heart where I marginalize other people. I need to make war on my pride, on my selfishness. That's where it's got to start. I wonder sometimes if we just sat, instead of, instead of like a lot of words and a long message and a long story, if we just sat with some questions. God, if I was just honest with myself. God, what, what's going on in my heart? Where do I, when, when stuff hits, where does my mind immediately go? Where does my mind go? Where, does, where do my thoughts go? Am I immediately leaping to a particular side or viewpoint? Am I immediately angry at someone? God, what about just specific people in my life that I'm around? Or what are, what are my hearts and my attitudes towards them? God, who do I prejudge? Who am I lifting up? Am I helping? Am I serving God? What am I doing? Kind of the main passage we're going to look at together this morning. I want to, I want to set the stage for this. Um, God's people, Israel, are about to, to launch out into a God-given conquest. They're being called to go into a land and into a new territory and to take possession of it. And that's going to involve war. And while we're not going to do a whole explanation of the book of Joshua and what's really happening in that book, maybe more than we understand at a surface level, I just want to highlight something. Even as God's people were setting out into that land to take over, Joshua finds himself like the night before in the evening alone. And they're about to draw up battle lines. And he has this encounter in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? I mean, that's a great question to ask when somebody's coming at you with a weapon. Hey, uh, whose side are you on there, buddy? You with me or against me? What's going on here? It's just a real reaction. There's a guy with a drawn sword. And the man said, no. <laughs> Think about that. Joshua's like, what, what side are you on? Are you with us? Are you here to help us take those guys down? Are you on our side to help us in this battle? Or are you with them? Are you coming against us? And the simple answer he, he gets is no. Okay, well, maybe there's more explanation coming along. Maybe this will get better. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. No, but I'm here. I'm here. I'm the commander of God's army. Now, I don't know if this makes you uncomfortable or not. I believe 
not only that every page in the scripture, Old and New Testament, is about Jesus, I believe he made some appearances at times through the Old Testament. And I believe this is one of them. There's a couple reasons why I think that. He's the commander of the Lord's army. That's a pretty good reason. But I want you to see Joshua's reaction to this as he has this encounter with Jesus. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did what? Worshipped. Now, there are other places in Scripture where angels show up. And when they show up and people start trying to worship them, the angels put a stop to it. They say, hold on. Nope. Get up. Nope. Don't worship me. Get back on your feet. But this person allows himself to be worshipped. And then look what Joshua says to him. What does my Lord say to his servant? And did the commander of the Lord's army give him specific instructions about how to get on his side or what the right answer is in this combat? It's not where he starts. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Look at this. Like when we find ourselves in the battle, it doesn't even have to be the battle over our opinion on some of these large issues. This is going to be about your battle today. The one you're facing right now. I don't know about you, but I found myself asking questions like, Like, God, are you the one actually fighting against me right now? What's going on? Where are you in this? Or I can be so filled sometimes with this righteous sense of anger that it's just obvious to me who the enemy is. That person is the problem. Look what they're doing to me. Look what they're saying about me. Look look what's happening right now. God, are you going to help me fight this? What's going on? And Jesus' message to us in the middle of that tension, that conflict, is, I'm here. I'm here. I'm present. I'm the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the Prince of peace. I have a kingdom, and I'm bringing my kingdom near. And our response in all the turmoil and all the junk, and all the mess, first and foremost, we can do what Joshua did and say, Lord, I'm yours. What do I do? And he says, well, how about you worship? And so we can humble ourselves and get on our knees before our God and stand in awe of him and worship him. Let's start there. Let's start recognizing Jesus is present Listen, this matters a lot. When it's dark, when it's discouraging, when I'm beat down and worn down and feeling alone, when I'm halfway up the mountain and I'm going, I don't think I can make it anymore. To know that he's actually right there present saying, I'm here and I'm with you. If I were to ask you guys, what's the most famous verse in the scripture? I would guess y'all would have an immediate response. You could probably tell me chapter and verse. Anybody want to give it a shot this morning? It's a big test. Crystal's not afraid. Manuel's not afraid. John 3.16, right? We just immediately go to it. 
I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a famous and well-known verse for a reason. It declares the incredible love of our God. Let's remind ourselves of it for a minute. For God so loved the world. The world. He's not picking sides. He's choosing everybody. He loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Man, I don't want to get so familiar with that verse that it loses its power, that it loses its ability to breathe hope and to breathe life and to remind me of what's real. I also think that there's another John 3, 16 that we should put right up next to this verse. It's just found in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Check this out. In a world that is looking to understand love, this same John writes and says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The Bible says that we're not really sure what we're going to look like when we reach the other side, when we find ourselves in heaven. But Paul assures us of this. One thing I do know, when I see him, I'm going to be like him. Because we're image bearers. Because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're going to look like him. And so he's inviting us into that even now. I've laid down my life. And now he's calling us to join him in that. So we, we start by just recognizing and acknowledging who he is. We worship him. We stand in awe of him. We recognize he is for every single one of us. And then in the midst of acknowledging that, if we want the world to experience God's love, by this we know love. We see it in Jesus, and then his people start to look like him. And so we love like that. We lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So there's that question asking that we were talking about. What if we sat with some hard questions at times? Said, God, come show me this. And then I, I love John's heart. I don't think he's insulting us here when he says little children. I think he's just coming in close as a fatherly figure to invite us into something. And he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. I want to talk to you about those four things really quick. First of all, not in word. It's the word logos. It's actually the same Greek word that we see that shows up when Jesus is being talked about in the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. The concept here is the intelligence or thought behind the word. It's, it's like the deeper thing behind the word we would say. It's the thought behind it. That second word there, because it sounds repetitive, not in word or talk. Talk is, is actually, that word could be just translated the tongue. But it's the act of speaking. So what he's saying is the way that we show love, it's not in just sitting down intellectually and forming like really well-framed catchphrases. 
and then using our mouths to just declare them loudly and assuming things are going to change. Love Trump's hate. I mean, it's creative. If we just say it a thousand times, is it going to change anything? Do, do I love in word and talk? No. How do I love? In deed and truth. That word deed, it means work. It means labor. In fact, it actually even gets translated as employment. Our job is to love like Jesus loves. It involves work. It involves labor. And that word truth, it's not a concept. That word truth actually means reality. I'm going to love in reality. It's going to have a real, tangible, outward expression that is experienced by people around me. I'm going to love in such a way that it's, it's going to take some work on my part. I'm going to have to, like, labor. But I'm going to tangibly look to love people that are around me. And it's going to be, it's going to be so real inside of me that as it works its way out, people around me will go, yeah, that's real. I don't see a perfect person, but I see a person who loves. I see a person who knows Jesus and who loves a lot like he does. Indeed and in truth. So what does this action in reality look like? Skip down just a couple of verses to 1 John 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Man, you will hear, you'll hear several things just repeated over and over again as we gather together and we talk about God and the life he's inviting us into. But one of the things you'll hear me talk about a lot is the abiding in him. He's the vine, we're the branches. You want to know how to live that out? Believe in him. Now that might sound like really obvious and you might be sitting there going, well, I already do. I've already made the choice to follow him. I believe in him. No, no, I mean like right here in this moment, in this situation, in this thing that is happening. That's where faith comes alive. Jesus, I'm believing your God right here, right now. Lord, I see the enemy powerfully, clearly, right in front of me. God, I'm even looking in the mirror and seeing the enemy there. I'm my own worst enemy at times. God, I, I'm fully aware of the battle. But do I see you right here with me? Do I believe in you? Do I believe you're present? And then do I participate with him in loving others? That's how this reaction becomes reality. I see past just the immediate, obvious, tangible right in front of me, and I recognize Jesus is there with sword drawn, ready to go to work. We, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Let me stop. All right. Okay, so we acknowledge and recognize his presence. We worship him. Then we begin to join him in what he's up to and loving others well. How do we do that? How do we do that? About five or six weeks ago, we talked about the story of the Good Samaritan. 
And, and I want to reference this um, to kind of set up this quote by Tim Keller where he's talking about this passage where Jesus is teaching us who we're called to love, who we're called to love. And Tim Keller writes about that passage and he says, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. Have you ever experienced that? Right, you kind of have the list of here's the few people that I'll really lay it out there for them and then I'm, I'm kind of good. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. We love our neighbors. We point them to Jesus because there's room for all. There's room for all. Check this out in Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. Listen, I hope we understand something this morning. The scripture while it gives us direction for life, absolutely. God gives us specific direct ways that we can live and interact in this world. He gives us a sense of morality. There's, there's instructions that we can follow. All of that is contained in the word of God. But primarily, the message of Jesus is just that. It's a message. We're sharing news. That's the primary thing that we are doing. We are sharing really great news. The world's a mess. It's in despair. Where we open, the Bob Marley quote, there is a philosophy at work that marginalizes and destroys people. There's only one thing that combats that. It's Jesus. God came down. He died. And... He rose again, and I want to tell you about it. It's, it's news. I don't know about you, that encourages me. I read a lot of news, probably more than I should at times. It gets me down. But I, I, I'm reading the, I was going to say newspaper. I'm reading on my phone things that have been put digitally online that at one point in time used to be printed on these things called paper. And you could pay money and someone would come to your house and throw it at your house. <laughs> and it would maybe land in your bushes, rarely right where it was supposed to be on your front doorstep. Like that was a thing. Some of you may know that that was a thing, but you didn't actually experience it. Okay, but that was a thing. Okay, so instead now I read that on my phone or on my laptop, but I read the news. But I forget that there's other news to be read. Jesus is real and he's alive and he loves people like crazy. And yeah, things look bad and desperate and a mess, but Jesus. And I get to carry that good news to people. 
And I get to spend time with Jesus myself and, and invite him close when it's hard and it's difficult. And he's there. He doesn't just come in close. He already was there. Now I just recognize it. He's with me. And I get to carry around this good news to a world desperate and in need. And the beauty of that kind of good news is I can carry it to the most victimized person and I can carry it to the angriest murderer there is. And they all need Jesus. Jesus ministered to prostitutes and offered them life in him. Battered, abused, used women, marginalized down to just some physical thing and not an image bearer of Jesus Christ, of God, our heavenly father. Marginalized, used, chewed up, and he loved. And then he takes a guy named Saul who feels righteous in what he's doing as he's murdering and sitting by affirming the murder of Christians. And Jesus said, I'll take him. I'll take him. And Saul becomes Paul. And we have like half the New Testament. His love, his hope, his message is for all. It's good news. And that passage in Romans, it continues. It doesn't stop at verse 13 where we just hear about the good news. We're then encouraged to do something. Verse 14. So we've got this world, Jews and Greeks. We could go on down the list. All the races, all the creeds, all the religions, all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues. They all need to hear the good news of Jesus. And verse 14 Ask some questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, if I don't believe Jesus is this person, then I, I can't experience the life he has for me. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? I don't know that everybody will believe, but they definitely can't believe if they haven't heard, if they're not even seeing Jesus. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We got a treasure that we get to carry. We get to share to a world around us. We're all qualified to be evangelists. We're all called. Do you have a brother? you have a sister? you have a cousin, a nephew? you have parents, children, neighbors, coworkers? There are people in our life who are desperately in need of good news and we can share it. We can share it. We can experience this life of Jesus and give it away. I want to I wrap up this morning um, reading a passage from a book that can really be misunderstood. Um, it's got all kinds of different powerful implications in it. It's the book of Revelation. And uh, it, it has a lot of prophetic things. It does reference end times. But I believe the book of Revelation is not primarily just prophecy about stuff that's going to happen one day. In fact, the title of the book is not even Revelations. Have you ever said Revelations with an S? I've, I've done that. I'm guilty of that. That's not the title of the book. 
The title of the book is The Revelation of what's going to happen? Jesus Christ. Primarily, the book of Revelation is, a, is meant to be a picture, a reminder of Jesus. And let's think about this for a minute. Who wrote this book? John. John wrote this book. John is in captivity. He's on the island of Patmos. He's most likely the last living disciple. He's watched his brothers in the faith have things like their heads cut off. Be hung on a cross upside down. He's watching the church as it's suffering the consequences of sharing this good news. The book of Revelation wasn't written in the midst of this glorious gathering with 100,000 Christians stoked and lit up and on fire. It was written by a man in a cave who'd watched one by one as those he loved had been persecuted and killed and now he's awaiting his moment. God, how much longer am I gonna be here? In the midst of that darkness, that discouragement, Jesus shows up. And in the midst of that kind of persecution and devastation, Jesus gives him a glorious vision that is simply meant to communicate, I see. I see. Yeah, there's a war. There's beasts and there's dragons and there's mountains. And there's just the sea of people in the middle just tossed in the tumult. But I see. And he says, I don't just see. I'm coming. Hold on. Hold on. I am who I said I am. I'm doing what I said I would do. And it is actually for that very sea, for those very people that I'm waiting. I'm not tearing because I don't care and I don't see and I'm not for you. I'm giving every last person an opportunity to see me, to know who I am, to come to salvation. And so hold on, stand fast. In the midst of, of that picture and that image, in the middle of that book, Jesus drops down this heavenly vision for John to see and hold on to. And in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold. Guys, don't skip over words. Everyone is there for a reason. If we don't stop and look, if we don't behold, We'll lose heart. We'll get discouraged. We'll get downtrodden. But look, behold. That means you, you let it hang there for a minute. You take it in. And I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Of all the white people. <laughs> from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and be, before the throne and before the lamb they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb 
The gospel of Jesus celebrates culture. It celebrates people. Jesus loves his creation. He loves the beauty of what he's made. The color, the culture, the language. The only thing he worries about is people not seeing him. When we attach too closely our religion to our culture, that he'll speak against. You know, one of the beautiful things I've, I've enjoyed over the years is I've, I've had the privilege to get to travel a little bit. And in every country I've been in, there's always something really unique about the people and the culture and the language. But you know what I've found everywhere I go? People who love Jesus. I've gotten to hang out in Ukraine with this sweet couple, I'll never forget, Alana? Alonia. I could never say her name right. I'll never forget this woman that I can't remember her name. But I mean, I can see her right now. We were in the middle of our adoption process for Micah and she's just this big pregnant gal helping us adopt our son from Ukraine. And in the middle of us being in another country, staying in some random place, waiting for all the paperwork to come through, she invited us into her home to have a meal. And we got to sit with her and her husband. And as we're talking, I'm realizing her husband does in Ukraine what I was doing in the U.S. He's a youth pastor. He was organizing a summer camp. <laughs> we're different. We're the same. And I found that everywhere I've been, I've been in Africa, I've been in, in South America, in the Caribbean, in Mexico. I see people who love Jesus. I see them worshiping him a little bit different than what it looks like when we worship him right here in this room. But they're worshiping Jesus. It's beautiful. It's glorious. God gives us that heavenly vision to remind us in the midst of the turmoil that we see right now, in the midst of the disunity and the dysfunction, that there's a king, there's a father, there's a kingdom, there's a family, and we're united. In the midst of turmoil, there is one who has peace, and it can be found in him, and it crosses cultures, it crosses races, it crosses languages, in fact, it embraces and celebrates those things as, as those people are embracing and celebrating him, the lamb who was slain. I want to finish by reading the next few verses, and I'm not even going to comment on them. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to pray. And so the story continues in Revelation chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power, might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. The tribulation you're going through is your great tribulation. The one you're facing today. The one friends of ours in Africa right now are facing today. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Jesus saying we need you is an understatement. But God, we need you. God, would you help us to slow down, to stop? In the midst of the turmoil, could we see you standing there, sword drawn, coming with a kingdom that brings life and hope and peace to a world in turmoil? God, could we see you bringing life and hope and peace in the midst of our turmoil? God, help us to slow down, to look, to behold. God, to invite your presence in your life in, in this moment, today. God, help us to be willing to ask some hard questions. Lord, would you refine us? God, where we look down, where we prejudge, where we pick sides so quickly, Jesus, would we be found on your side? Bears of your gospel, bears of the good news to a world in need. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your incredible love for us. God, help us to abide in you as you abide in us. And may we produce good fruit. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.